Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. I'm not going to gloat. I'm not. I'm not going to gloat, but it was fun to to watch. Uh, I feel sorry for all the Boston fans out there. I guess kind of. Uh, it's a good team, and I think there's some feeling that the Warriors, the team itself, you know, nobody's getting any younger, right? And so this might be really their last hurrah, but they do have some some rising stars. But yeah, to 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 watch Clay's come back after being out a couple of years and watch Steph Curry and just I always marvel at the fact that the other team pretty much knows what he's gonna do. You know, he's gonna he's gonna wind around, he's gonna run through the key, he's gonna run over here and run over there, and they somehow get him the ball. And then he somehow gets these shots off and he ends up scoring, you know, 30 or 40 points, despite the other team knowing the, the plan. And here they are dealing, you know, playing the Celtics and the Celtics know they know the game. They know what's going to happen and they can't stop it. And, you know, when he gets through and does some of these layups, you, you think, what the heck, you know? It reminds me of the uh, of the Jordan years in Chicago. You know, everybody knew what was going to happen once they threw the ball up, and it still happened. You know, right? Yeah. So the uh, the victory parade is Monday morning or Monday afternoon, and uh, uh, the the guy my daughter is dating is going to go. I don't know. I don't think he's in the parade, but he's definitely going to go. He, he does uh, video editing for the Warriors, so he's excited oh, cool. about that. Very nice. Well, we were talking before the series. A lot of like the advanced stats and you know the the too cool for school analysts. You know, a lot of them were Golden State was a minus one sixty, one seventy favorite to win the series, and a lot of the advanced stat guys were saying they got it wrong. Like Boston should be favored, but then you heard kind of the, the basketball people say, wow, you got Steve Kerr versus a rookie coach. And how often does the team that wins the NBA finals not have the best player on the court? Uh, you really start to think about that and think about champions. Almost always the NBA champion is the team with the best individual player. And uh, we certainly saw that this last week. So, yeah. Good stuff. Well, happy Friday, everyone. Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative here once again with the rundown with Robin Rich, where we take you into the weekend by running through all the latest, greatest, the week that was with the mortgage industry, another wild week for our industry and uh, excited to get into the banter. Uh, as always, as I am each week, my esteemed colleague, co-host, Rob Crisman. Rob, welcome and congrats again on your Warriors. Thank you. Good to be here. And then this week, uh, you know, we've been talking so much just about rates and government policy as it relates to housing um, and uh, inventory and supply. Obviously, huge issues our industry and housing and the U.S. economy faces more broadly. So decided to bring on an actual expert this week as opposed to me, Rob, and I, our continual dart throws. So very pleased this week to introduce uh, in the co-pilot seat a non-resident fellow at the Urban Institute, also owner of Parrot Ryan Advisors, advisory firm that uh, gives their clients strategic advice on housing finance issues. And before that, a senior advisor to the National Economic Council, uh, where he was really charged with leading a team of advisors that would counsel President Obama and his cabinet on housing issues, Jim Parrot. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Awesome. Let's go ahead and get into it. And Rob, can't start any other way than, than talking about uh, the Fed meeting this week and everything that, that kind of swirled around it. Uh, you go back to last Friday, uh, our show, uh, a hotter than expected CPI number after some numbers that were looked pretty good, uh, kind of freaked people out. Stocks tanked into the weekend. Um, you know, treasuries and other fixed income assets started selling off. Get into Monday, the Fed assuredly leaks to the New York Times that they're going to they're now thinking about 75 basis points causes all the markets to go crazy. Fed meets this week. They do indeed raise 75, which hadn't really been talked about mainstream until recently. Pretty much intimate they're going to raise 75 again in July. And we see 30 year fixed rates 
come back a little bit down now last couple of days. But the biggest jump up after jumping up these last five months in 35 years, 10 year going all the way up to three, three and a half percent from 295 over the course of a week. So wild week, your thoughts on the Fed rates and, and all that madness. All in uh, 30, 30 seconds or less. So it was interesting leading up to the, the Federal Reserve, the FOMC's meeting this week, because so many Fed presidents were out there talking about 50 basis points, 50 basis points, 50 basis points. But the inflation data that we've seen recently has really taken the, the I won't say taken the Fed by surprise, but or, or tied their hands necessarily, but they're definitely in a reactionary mode to to be focused on controlling inflation and trying to trying to stop that march onward versus uh, all this talk about uh, growth and the possibility of recession. So really the Federal Reserve apparently felt they had little other choice than to, to bump up the target Fed funds rate by 75 basis points. And you're right, now they're talking about another 75 basis points. The mortgage rates that I'm seeing on rate sheets definitely in the high fives, if not low sixes, depending on loan level price adjustments. The pool of potential refi candidates, you know, is at a, I won't say an all-time low, but it, it's plummeted with this move up in rates. And so the lenders that I've spoken with this week, really uh, one, one person used the term nuclear winner uh, in terms of business coming in the door. And the independent mortgage banks are grappling with credit unions and banks offering some intermediate arm rates that are still in the high threes or low fours. And it's very difficult for an independent mortgage bank to compete with, uh, with, the, non, with, the, with the credit unions and with the banks at those kind of rate levels. So the, the volatility has really hurt a lot of lenders out there. And, you know, eventually we'll kind of settle in here, but really you have a lot of people talking about affordability disappearing for people, including first time home buyers. The talk about affordable housing has kind of left, left the building to some extent. And so I'm especially interested in, in hearing Jim's take on all of this turmoil and all of this, you know, interest rate movement and what impact that has in terms of, of housing policy. How can, what's, what are, what's a good way for lenders to think about the economy and the move in interest rates and how it impacts housing policy, Jim? Yeah, I mean, the, the administration really going back well into last year um, has been, almost overwhelmingly focused on uh, on the supply problem, right? So they, they're very concerned and have been for a while about the balance between supply and demand that goes back, you know, quite a ways now um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is uh, they're deathly afraid of inflation. Um, you know, no surprise at this point. They're worried about the politics and the economics of it. Um, and, uh, and roughly a third of the CPI uh, that most use to measure uh, inflation um, is from housing costs. It comes from you know rent and, and home prices, and uh, and you know much of the upward movement in home prices is coming from supply constraints. Uh, and so that you know the administration is really focused on um, what they can do to try to ease those constraints. And then the second reason they're focused, all this pushes them to focus on. Uh, the supply problem is, as you mentioned, uh, it's such a problem for affordability. So rising rents, uh, it's draining savings for renters, uh, among whom are some of the more you know, vulnerable folks in the country. And then rising home prices combined with rising rents makes it hard for folks to move from the rental bucket over into the homeownership bucket. Um, and so uh, they really struggle with what to do on the supply side. And then on the, the relatedly, um, Back when I was uh, on the inside advising on, on this stuff, you know, we were all in on demand, right? At that point, you had like an inversion of what we're dealing with now. You had a supply overhang, you had a collapse in demand. I mean, every chart that you're looking at now with supply doing this and demanding that, it was all flipped back then. And so everything we were doing was focused on, 
shoring up demand and, and trying to find a way to, to, to um, uh, reduce the supply pressure that it was putting on prices. And so um, there's a pretty good toolkit for demand side help. You know, we kind of know down payment assistance, you know, easing pricing, the, the things the Fed can do to, uh, to juice demand in a situation in which um, that's what you need to help. Uh, helping on supply is just a lot harder. You know, it takes a, a much longer time to get supply help into the market. You know, even if they were to wave a magic wand and, and do something today to change the economics of, of building entry level housing, you know, maybe you see units uh, affected by that, you know, a year or two down the road, but they don't happen tomorrow. Um, and so the administration's really, um, uh, to the degree the White House and that level of folks in the administration are focused on housing, it's almost exclusively on uh, on trying to deal with the supply demand imbalance. So I, I wanted to ask you, and I've made this point uh, on the show many times, it's, it's one thing for the administration or any administration to to make a proclamation to to talk about we need more affordable housing we need to help first-time homebuyers we need you know communities to do this that and the other thing and then by the time that trickles down into a community you know jim you know if i if i've saved up my whole life and i've bought my 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 wonderful home here in the suburbs. I don't want, you know, 80 units of affordable housing going in a half a block away because I, 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 you know, this is my nirvana, you know, I've, I've, you know, here I am kind of thing. And so when you are talking to lenders about how to think about affordable housing and what the administration might want done, how, what are you seeing in terms of communities, in terms of counties and cities and states and how they're reacting to that? And if you're a lender, how do you, what, what should you watch for in terms of affordable housing, uh, you know, being promoted by the administration? Yeah. So um, the, they're focusing on a couple of things. Uh, one of which is, a, is sort of at the community level and I'll come to that in a second, but um one of the the areas they think they can make a difference in um, is uh, expanding access to financing in segments of the market that uh, suffer from not enough on the supply side. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so uh, one of the problems uh, that the construction industry's faced going back now since the last crisis uh, is access to construction lending. Right, you got big guys that have access to to liquidity. Small and medium-sized builders have largely lacked it, so their uh, capital is more expensive, and that makes the the math of of, of construction, especially at the bottom of the market, hard, sometimes prohibitive. Um, and so, one of the things that the administration's done is they're pushing uh, Fannie to develop a pilot to provide construction to perm lending. So basically, uh, a secondary market for loans made presumably by banks. To builders before they've got a building up. Historically, Fannie only you know buy loans that are collateralized by an actual building, and so they're trying to get Fannie to entertain the notion of, of beginning you know liquidity a little earlier to make the math better for small medium sized guys. Um, they're also expanding financing for manufactured housing and ADUs and some other sort of niches that have long you know, long um, suffered from a lack of financing. But at the community level, and this may ultimately be more important um, that. The arguably the biggest impediment to supply going back now quite some time is local decision making, right? It's it's zoning, it's um, it's uh, impediments to to density in certain communities, like the one you know you just mentioned. You don't want to have you know, a high rise, you know, half halfway down your block, um, and, and even if if communities are allowing um, construction sort of in their you know in metro areas. Uh, the permitting costs and the like are such that oftentimes the math doesn't work, certainly at the bottom end. Um, but these are all local decisions. So it's hard for the feds to wave a magic wand and, and affect such a local decision making sort of issue. So what, what they're trying to do um, is change the incentives for communities to reconsider uh, how they think about zoning, how they think about this issue. Um, and the, the way they've done this is a few weeks ago, they announced a whole host of things that are intended to solve this set of problems. And, and the 
most interesting piece of it is uh, they're taking the some segment of the transportation part of the infrastructure package that was passed earlier this year, and they're going to tie it to they're going to tie how that money gets allocated to how communities handle their zoning. So if you're a community that um, that for all intents and purposes prohibits the construction of uh, density, you know, uh, in areas where um, you know, we need affordable housing, you're going to get less of that money than if you're a community that, that is more inclusive in how you think about zoning. And, and the reason why that's interesting, it's not a big number early. I forget the, the, the number of billions of dollars that are in play. Um, but because they're beginning to tie uh, DOT funding um, and considering tying some HUD funding, so federal funding that's going to these communities anyway, um, to how communities think about their zoning, um, it might be the kind of federal hook into this issue that they've lacked for decades, frankly. And so it'll be interesting to see whether or not um, communities are responsive. I mean, those communities that are really dug in on this, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at them, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to change their minds. But they're probably communities on the margins where, um, uh, you know, they, they the votes have been close, you know, um, at the town council level, at the historic commission level. Uh, and this might be enough to sort of tip them over. Um, but administration is really struggling to figure out a way um, to, uh, to to put federal hooks into what's a pretty localized problem because they've come to realize that in some ways the localized nature of this is the most important piece of the puzzle. Um, and so they feel like if you want to fix what's become a national problem, um, they've got to find a way into to, to that local decision making somehow. What about uh, obviously lenders on the call here? Uh, or did they deal with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac? They deal with FHA and VA and, and HUD and Ginnie Mae, et cetera. What are you seeing at the investor level in terms of pricing that might impact, you know, affordable housing or how housing policy in general? What what should what are lenders seeing out there now? You mean pricing um, investors coming in and buying up? Um, properties? Is that what you mean by investors? Yeah, well, let's start with that. Sure. I, I know that, uh, so in my commentary today, I mentioned, I know that the Atlanta mayor has thrown thrown out the suggestion that Atlanta limit the number of investor-owned properties in, in Atlanta, which to many smacks of, well, I don't know, Government control or socialism, right. whatever you want to say. So yeah, let's start with let's start with that. That how that that aspect of it. Yeah. So um, I mean, it's an interesting, I think, really complicated issue. So so to 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 clarify at least what I'm what I think of when I uh, am answering this question, the the challenge that has come up is um, you've got an increasing amount of investor capital. Um, that is increasingly well-organized and well-structured, for lack of a better way to put it, um, in investing in uh, single-family rentals, basically. So that they've, they have uh, moved into you know, certain segments uh, in the country, not all. It's, it's a, a very um, uh, lumpy sort of investment strategy. You know, they tend to focus um, on certain communities, not all. But where they have focused, you've seen... The black zones of the world, um, you know, invest in communities and buy up often in bulk um, uh, properties in a way that makes it hard for owner occupants to compete. You know, if you're if you're gonna um, if you're if you're a first time home buyer, want to be a first time home buyer, and you're uh, you know going to to put a bid in on a house, and uh, you're already facing a bunch of uh, others that. You know, say you've got an FHA loan or you think you might have an FHA loan, you're already facing some others and they have a GSE loan, which they can turn around a little more quickly or heaven forbid are going to offer in cash. So you're already sort of a, um, you're already a little behind the eight ball. If you wind up facing an investor that's willing to pay a, you know, a, a, a premium because of their cost of capital being different than yours and, um, and you know, and being, being willing to pay in cash, it's just hard for you to put up much of a fight against uh, an investor that's got those resources and can move that way. And so, in a, you know, repeatedly in some communities, investors winning those bidding wars over and over again. And so that's created some frustration. Um, and then to make it more complicated politically, 
you got a lot of folks that are looking for a bad guy in this you know saga right now. And, and when you put you know private equity and, and Wall Street capital into the equation, it creates a political narrative that's that's easy to point at somebody and blame for all the lack of uh, affordable housing. Um, that oversimplifies the situation a fair amount. Uh, you've got some of these investors that have actually teamed up with builders uh, who are actually increasing overall supply. So you're getting builders who are building supply just for this purpose. Um, so the story is a little more complicated than that. Um, I think uh, the the numbers nationwide, you know, depends on what numbers you look at. But uh, these days, investors are buying up, you know, anywhere between, um, you know, eight and fifteen percent of uh, of of the market. Um, uh, that's probably misleading because most of their resources are being allocated to a you know a finite set of communities. So that number tends to be. Uh, either higher or lower, um, uh, the national number tends to be misleading. So I, I think the investor issue is is probably relevant in a in a small number of communities across the country where you know, you're getting up into the uh, you know a quarter of the markets being consumed by um, investors. I do wonder if the math is going to work for them as interest rates keep rising and, and this um, you know this big gets more you know mathematically challenging for these guys. Um, so it may be that, that the economics of all this begins to um, solve the problem for us over the next six months. Um, but what I would say is uh, between now and then, um, the easiest answer for communities um, is to uh, is to make it political and to say things like we're going to put a cap on it. You know, you're not going to be able to have more than uh, X investors owning properties in, you know, in your neighborhood and all of that. Um, because uh, it puts a bad guy, you know, a bad guy's face on a problem that's a lot more complicated to solve than that. So the politics of this aren't going to ease anytime soon, but the economics might. Right. So lenders, lenders tuning in have had to deal with pricing fluctuations from the FHFA via Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in terms of second homes, but also in terms of investor properties. Um which brings up the question about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and their and their role and so forth. And, and some years ago, uh, leading up to, let's say, well, through, throughout the Trump administration, uh, GSE reform was a big topic out there. Gee, you know, recapitalize and release, and so let's let's let them retain their earnings, and then at some point, you know, release them into the. Uh, you know, into the wild and, you know, see how they do. And that's where they should be and so forth. They don't belong under government conservatorship and so forth. And with the Biden administration coming in, it seems like the talk of, of GSE reform has, uh, it hasn't, well, I'll say it almost has disappeared. It seems like the, you know, Sandra Thompson coming in and so forth and, and uh, just so you know, Sandra has spoken a couple of times to uh, the Mortgage Collaborative Group here, but it seems like talk of GSE reform has been replaced by talking about, you know, once again, affordable housing, first-time homebuyers, and really focusing in on home ownership rather than investor properties or second homes and so forth. Where, where from your perspective, where is the GSE reform movement now and what should people on the call? Yeah, man, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, so uh, I think that, uh, so right now the administration, at least at the White House Treasury sort of level, um, they they are really focused elsewhere. You know, they're, they're so worried about inflation and worried about all these other um in some cases, related economic issues, they're not putting a lot of bandwidth into this issue. They see the housing market is, um, you know, is is not a fire they need to spend much political capital putting out relative to at least other fires. Um, and so the the significant bandwidth it takes to actually have a meaningful conversation about GSC reform, um, and it is all consuming. I mean, we were in the same place the last administration was in the Obama administration. We spent God knows how many hours debating um, you know, what form the GSC should take and how to get from here to there and all that, um, as did the last administration. Uh, it is an all-consuming effort once you get into it. And these guys um, have other all-consuming efforts that are uh, uh, that are that are taking up their time. I think in the meantime, Sandra and, um, and to some degree the rest of the administration are really focused on uh, trying to find ways to 
uh, ensure that the GSEs and FHA are serving sort of the broader housing agenda uh, that administration has. So less focused on, um, you know, getting the GSEs to some other structure, getting them out of conservatorship and more focused on how do you make sure that they're stable and playing the role you want them to play today. And, and the way to translate that to the investor property, you know, mission focused uh, discussion that you were alluding to. Um, if you think about pricing for a minute, uh, which is where you started the comment, which is directly relevant to all this. Uh, the way that Sandra thinks about, and FHF, this FHA thinks about pricing is, um, is sort of, think about the GSE's business is broken into three categories. Um, one is the mission category. So, you know, affordable housing, goals due to serve, some cases, first-time homeownership, Um and then the second, the other end of the spectrum is, is more sort of mission remote. So investor properties, maybe high balance lending, um, you know, second homes, that kind of thing. Maybe cash out refis, there could be a debate there. And then the rest is kind of the core business. It's just, you know, plain vanilla, 30-year fixed rate, purchase, you know, rate and term refi. And so they, they, they sort of divide the world into those three channels. And what they're trying to do with their pricing, which is an indication of how they view the role of the GSEs generally is... Um, how do you maximize the pricing in that mission remote bucket? That is the bucket where um, the, the argument for having the government support or lean in to support markets is maybe not as strong as it is on the, on the mission side of the business. How do you price that up in a way um, that maximizes the profits that GSEs can make without losing the business? So you don't price it up so it goes um, you know, goes to banks or whatever, you, you know, you, you keep it in within the footprint, but you increase pricing enough. So you've got enough excess profits, as it were, to turn around and use it um, to reduce pricing uh, at the other end of the, the spectrum where they think their mission is, is strongest. And they, you saw them do a little bit of that with, um, uh, with second homes um, and, and high balance lending a while back when they, they moved up pricing. They had already done it with investor private properties where the pricing was already pretty high. So I think the pricing there is already kind of at the edge. I think they're of the view that if they went much farther, they might actually begin to lose market share. I think there's a good chance you'll see cash out refi pricing go up a little bit because they think they've got a little room there uh, to move before they lose market share. And then you'll take all of that uh, additional, you know, profit as it were, and uh, and and cut pricing probably pretty significantly at the mission end. So I think that's probably coming in the next few months. But the reason why I mention it is that's the kind of thing they're focused on right now. They're not focused on, you know, you know, getting the GSEs to a place where they can go out and raise, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars in capital to get out anytime soon. Um, they're not looking at restructuring the regulatory regime so that. Uh, they can better manage the GSEs once they're out. That's just not where their collective head is. Their collective head is on, um, you know, how do you get pricing and the mission of the GSEs aligned with where, you know, the administration is generally, I think. It's, it, I always uh, uh, am amazed when I think about the, the, the number crunching ability of FHFA and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to deal with trillions of dollars of loans and, and, run the analysis in terms of if we do this to non-owner occupied pricing, what is the impact? If we do this to second homes, what is the impact uh, going to be on our volume and so forth? The What we saw in terms of when, when COVID hit in March of 2020, so many private companies, uh, and namely non-QM, non-agency, jumbo, backed out of the market, either mostly or entirely. And it really left a bad taste in lenders' mouths because here they were, they had pipelines of jumbo loans and non-QM, non-agency yeah. loans that were- Oh, destined, I remember, yeah. Yeah, for these companies. And suddenly, you know, they, you know suddenly they- went away and they they've since come back does the from your perspective in terms of government and and you know housing and so forth do, do you think that that government officials and regulators understand how private companies 
can can react to changes in the marketplace and the role that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who never stopped buying loans. But do you under, do you think they, yeah. they understand the difference? So, so um, I think FHFA and the GSEs uh, do. I think the rest of the administration. You, you got a lot of folks in the administration that are economists who are helping in housing. They're not housing folks, right? So they, they're not this. This level of nuance to those folks will be intuitive, but it's not something that they've got decades of experience knowing. FHFA, on the other hand, knows it at a pretty deep level because the GSEs know it at a deep level. So I'm pretty comfortable. This is something they um, they're sensitive to. Uh, I, and I think to to sort of put a fine point on it, when you think about pricing, so. Um, you know, they will, if they really are trying to find the outer edge in these non-mission sort of segments or mission remote segments, um, that outer edge is going to move. It's not like it was handed down from the heavens. And once they figure out what it is, they can just land on it, and, you know, and, and call it a day. But but once they, they you know, push their, their pricing up far enough, you're going to have a bunch of sources of private capital that left you know, a couple of years ago to think, you know, it's it's worth my time and effort and investment to, you know, set up an infrastructure because pricing now makes, you know, makes a little more sense. And so you're going to see folks come in from the sidelines a little um, and it'll change where the, the agency bid that inflection point is. So the inflection point may be X today. Um, and, and if they get all the way out there to X minus one or whatnot, you're going to see a bunch of banks and others that think, you know, that X isn't so bad. I, I can make some money if I if I start charging, you know, X minus one or whatever. And so they'll begin to deploy resources to set up shop at that, you know, at that border. And uh, and the GSEs and FHA are going to have to be careful uh, because at some point um, that line is going to move on them and they are going to lose market share. Even if they don't lose it tomorrow, um, you know, at some point the market's going to move enough so that, you um, you know, they'll get taken out in a way. And so they've got to be flexible enough um, uh, to to change, um, you know, what their pricing looks like in response to what the outside world's doing. And I mean, in, in this uh, in this environment, people are going to be chasing margin and you're going to have all kinds of folks that are willing to move at prices where they might not have been willing a year ago. And so, um, you know, the, the, the GSEs are certainly going to be sensitive to that because they're not going to want to lose market share. And I think in the last administration where there was more focus on getting the GSEs, frankly, smaller and more deeply capitalized and ready to go out, um, I think there would have been some risk that um, FHFA wouldn't allow them to, to lower pricing to hold market share because they'd say, hey, if the private market's willing to, to come in at that price, you know, who's the government to screw that up? I think this administration wants to cross subsidies so badly, um, they're not going to give that market share away nearly as easily. Um, right. I mean, if they if they price themselves out of the market in all these mission remote segments um, on the argument that sometimes you hear from progressives, it's a wrong headed argument here sometimes that um, we, the government, shouldn't be in the business of worrying about supporting investor properties anyway. But the reason why that doesn't make much sense is if even if you don't care about investor properties in some social way, um, if what you care about are those that need a little help on their pricing, well, that money's got to come from somewhere. And right now it comes from the investor properties. It comes from the cash outs. And so if you lose that business, um, the subsidy you're going to allocate downstream to first-time homebuyers and the rest, it's going to get smaller. Uh, and I think this administration, this FHFA gets that. And so I think they'll be reticent to let too much market share slip. That's not to say they won't screw up and, you know, and, and price it in a way that ultimately uh, proves to be overly aggressive. I mean, it's inevitable. It happens to other businesses too. The question is, how quickly can they correct course uh, and move, you know, move their outer edge back a little bit so they can hold on to the share they need? Yeah, that, those are great points. Absolutely. This is the rundown with Rob and Rich. I'm Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative, joined as always by Rob Crisman. This week, really pleased to be joined by Jim Parrott who is a non-resident fellow at the Urban Institute, owner of Parrot Ryan Advisors, who advises clients on housing finance issues, and uh, longtime senior housing policy advisor to the Obama administration. Jim, fascinating points, especially some of the insight into how the GSEs look at pricing and pricing moves and uh, 
Uh, as always, any questions, comments, anybody has for Jim, please feel free to put them in the chat or Q&A and we'll incorporate them. And uh, Jim, I'm going to rapid fire some questions at you that we've had come in and some questions I had. Um, FHA mortgage insurance premium, do you think we're going to see a reduction coming soon here? Yeah, so I, I think this is an interesting area where the market um, uh, doesn't fully understand where we are policy-wise. So uh, let me lay the table for you and then I'll, I'll back into what I think is going to happen. So FHA, as a lot of your viewers will know, um, has a lot more capital or at least implied capital than they need. So their, their statutory minimum is about 2%. They're, they've got, as of November of last year, 8%. It may be a little less than that now, but not, not, not meaningfully. Um, so they've got a lot of capital headroom to move to cut premiums. And I think as a result of that, you've had a lot of people uh, claim they ought to cut premiums pretty severely. Um, the problem is they have priced into the administration's budget FHA's pricing of today. So if they <laughs> cut FHA pricing by a dollar, somebody at HUD's got to give that dollar back in some other form. And so uh, FHA, you know, they, they're counting on for budgetary purposes uh, the revenue stream that FHA is bringing in to pay for you know a whole bunch of other stuff, and so if they reduce that revenue stream by half, um, they're going to have to go you know take a billion dollars out of the pocket of some other HUD program, and that's a pretty damn binding constraint. That, that may not be a, a binding constraint so much that they don't do anything, but but it means that if they do move, it will be much more modestly than I think folks expect because I think folks and I was guilty of this at the beginning too. Um, I think folks were doing their their MIP math based on this 8% versus 2% difference. And you come up with some pretty wild numbers for what they could cut to spend that, that 6%, you know, capital buffer, but that's the wrong math. You're sort of looking at the wrong, the, the wrong equation there. The math really is, um, you know, where else at HUD do you think you got room to cut to pay for this, uh, you know, for, for this cut. And as I said before, um, they're really worried about supply side stuff. So you don't want to go cut a supply side program. Do you want to cut rental vouchers? You know, the politics and economics of that are hard. So I think there's a chance that you might see a really modest cut uh, in, in the coming months, but it'll be modest because of that budgetary constraint. I think what you're likely to see, whether they cut MIP or not, is a fair amount of throat clearing around, um, you know, it's the budget's fault. We can't, we can't cut but so much because it's priced in. And you'll probably, I, I hope this is the case. This has been my advice to them. You'll get a little signaling that, look, when the next budget cycle comes up, uh, it, as long as FHA's got the kind of capital cushion it's got now, uh, we will cut MIP much more significantly consistent with that, you know, budget, that, that uh, capital headroom we've got. Uh, and once we decide what we'll cut, we'll factor that into the, you know, the, the baseline budget and we'll have more room and we'll be fine. Um, but it means that deep cuts are not likely to happen until the next, next budget cycle, which means, you know, next year. So I think we're far off from a deep cut uh, from FHA. Do you think, uh, do you think that the, and I know we're six months away from the election, but, you know, the press is already talking about it. And the press is talking about how the Republicans may see a resurgence in Congress. If that happens, Jim, do you think that will impact any of the things that we've been talking about on this call? Yeah, so... I think much of what's going on right now is administrative. You know, it's regulatory agencies. It's uh, it's the Biden administration. And those those seats aren't going to change no matter what happens in Congress. I think what will happen is if indeed you see power shift in Congress, which I think is a high likelihood, um, I think you'll see a lot more hearings on all this stuff. You'll see Sandra getting dragged up there and yelled at by um, by whoever's running the Senate Banking Committee. Um and, uh, and that'll make folks a little more cautious, probably, um, than, than they would be otherwise, because they know they're going to get dragged to the principal's office repeatedly and have to explain themselves. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, even if, if Congress flips, it'll flip at the margin. You know, we'll go from, from a 50-50 split to maybe a 51-49, you know, maybe a 52-48 um, nothing's getting passed in that environment, you know, so it's not like you're going to suddenly see a big wave of, 
um, you know, a veto proof legislation that, that's going to move the ball in some meaningful way. So what it'll do is it'll change what we're talking about because the chairs, of the banking committee and the House Financial Services Committee will change and they will focus on different stuff, um, which means you'll see the administration having to defend itself on various fronts. Um, but I, I don't think it'll meaningfully change the policy per se. I, d- I do think one thing that will change as we get into sort of the back half of this first term for the Biden administration is um, well, two things. One, uh, I do think they will eventually begin to focus on GSC reform a little bit because I think they it will begin to sink in um, that uh, there's a lot of opportunity cost to not engaging with the GSEs a little more actively than they have been. Um, and two, I think they'll realize that if they're not around for a second term, uh, the next administration uh, may take the course the last administration was you know was taking and may push the GSEs out in a way that make these guys uncomfortable. So I think you'll see a, they will begin to focus on cleaning things up, you know, in the last couple of years of their term. And then in, in Congress, and this is the optimist in me, this is the glass half full version, um, th- there, there's a fair amount of interest in some supply side legislation. Um, I've talked to some members uh, in the Senate, especially moderates, who really would like to put together a tax side package um, to help on supply side issues, you know, plussing up LIHTC and, and the like. Um, and they realize these are D's. They realize that it's going to be hard to pass anything heading into a midterm. It's just the politics are pretty prohibitive. But there's often historically um, a, a sort of honeymoon period between midterms and the, the, in the next January where outgoing policymakers um, would like to get something done before they leave. Um, and you end up with small deals being cut. And, and there's no reason why moderate Republicans wouldn't be interested in a tax-focused supply-side package. So I've been helping folks sort of put stuff together sort of for that window in the hope that we wind up with this, you know, brief, you know, window of, of competence from Congress where we can get something done. So there's a chance that you might see at the end of this year a window where small stuff gets Uh, gets passed. It's hard to know whether after January, uh, there's an opening where Biden is forced to the center a little bit because now his dance partner's different. uh, And you wind up with moderates um, in in the Senate and the House willing to cut deals that might, you know, get Biden's signature. Um, That's the way it's worked in, in, you know, decades past. Recently, things are so toxic that, you know, there's reason to be, you know, a little, um, uh, careful about, you know, speculating too much about a, a period of bipartisanship. But you can imagine uh, maybe next year seeing a, a bit of a move by the Biden folks to try to find some bridge there. I think in the year after that, we'll then be pivoting to a presidential election and all bets are off. Everybody reverts to their you know worst fifth grade self on both sides of the aisle. So I'm not sure we'll see much then. But but next year, there might be a period. Fifth grade at best. IMB, IMB reform, Jim, uh, you know, led by Rocket. IMB is probably doing 70% of the mortgages in America. It used to be flip-flop banks, depositories doing yeah. that led by the Wells and Chases. Seems like the government, uh, federal government is just generally a little uncomfortable with non-banks doing that much of the mortgage lending. Um, any, you know, there's been talk of, you know, obviously the servicing capital thing from last year and uh, talk about CRA require any, anything coming for IMB. Yeah, I, so I think the, the IMB stuff's fascinating because- <laughs> On the one hand, you're right. Regulators have been nervous about the the rise of IMBs and and their perception that regulators' perception that IMBs aren't regulated in the same way the banks are. And and the Fed in particular has expressed consistent angst over all this. Um, On the other hand, IMBs have stepped into a a vacuum that the banks have left at places like FHA. And so you got to be careful with with how you sort of drop the hammer on IMBs uh, given uh, you know, that they moved into this this space for a reason. And it's not obvious to me that if they leave, you know, somebody else is going to go fill that gap in a way that is going to make any of us all that happy as far as, you know, l- lending to first-time home buyers and underserved communities. So they've got, I think they're aware of this. So they've got a bit of a dance, a complicated dance here between, you know, slowly cranking up capital rules and counterparty rules for IMBs, but, but trying to do it in a way that doesn't scare everybody off. Uh, such that the communities these guys care most about, you know, are, are back in the soup or they're not being served all that well. Uh, I mean, if you look at FHA's numbers, 
Um, I mean, they're overwhelmingly being served by IMBs. You look at, you know, black homeowners, Latinos, IMBs are, you know, all over those communities. And so if you pull those guys out too aggressively, you know, you got a real access problem. But um, FHFA and Ginny did hear loudly and clearly the Fed's concern about all of this. And so they've gone back to look at their counterparty rules with IMBs in mind. So I do think in the next couple of months, you're going to see FHFA come out with, um, you know, finalizing their seller servicer uh, requirements, which have a, a real IMB sort of hook to them. Um, I think Ginny will, will do the same. Ginny uh, under the last Trump's Ginny, they had proposed a rule. I think the, the new Ginny president, Elena McCargo, who's from Urban, an old colleague of mine, is sort of reassessing whether or not the proposed approach makes sense. They are, they, Jenny, are, are trying to sync up with FHFA a little more than we've seen in the past. So my sense is you'll see over a few months, um, the two of them come out with, uh, with you know, issuer guidelines for Jenny, seller servicer guidelines for Fannie and Freddie. They're hopefully, um, if not the same, because their problems are a little different, Jenny's a different channel than Fannie and Freddie, at least synced up to the point where the IMBs are on the receiving end of both sets of these regulatory regimes, you know, aren't dealing with um, tension between the regimes. FHFA is focusing mainly on a liquidity risk. Um, you know, they saw back in March of 2020 how, you know, borrowers quit paying their mortgages. Um, you know, banks began to get a little nervous about their warehouse lines. And we all got a little nervous about whether or not bond investors were going to get paid. So you ended up with this, this collective dis-ease about you know what was happening in that channel. I think they they FHFA realized that that's less a solvency issue in the way that you would worry about with banks and more of a liquidity issue, which is making sure that IMBs have got access to capital um to you know to to fill the gap when when borrowers aren't paying uh, at the rate that they you know were before. Um, it's good that they're doing that because uh addressing liquidity risk is a hell of a lot easier than address, addressing solvency risk. And so I think you'll see, you know, added liquidity buffers and the like that will, uh, you know, force the IMBs to hold a bit more capital than they have before, but hopefully not prohibitively more. Um, they came out with a proposal, you know, a few months back that uh, by and large makes a lot of sense. They probably went overboard here and there. They've got a, you know, a big buffer now uh, imposed on hedging positions, which is probably a little too much. They've got, uh, they no longer count as capital um, unused commit lines of credit. That seems a little aggressive. You know, I can see why I wouldn't count it for 100 cents in the dollar, but zero seems a little extreme. So they're, they're still trying to, you know, tweak the levers, but uh, I think they'll land in a place that's probably pretty healthy uh, over the next couple of months. Jenny probably has um, a bigger change ahead of them. You know, they, they, as I mentioned, had a more of a bank-like approach to this last time around, um, you know, Basel-like approach where you got risk-based capital and minimum leverage ratio. My guess is they shift more in the liquidity uh, risk uh, direction in the way that FHFA has. If so, they probably reduce the, the binding constraint of that risk-based capital and add in some liquidity buffers instead. That'll take some more time because that's a pretty different way of going about it than they had before. But all this is, you know, feels like it's a you know, later this summer, early fall kind of thing. Um, they'll have a lot of time to implement this. I think the regulators are, are you know, painfully aware of how much strain IMBs are under right now. And the last thing you want to do is, you know, add a, you know, a backbreaking log to the, to the load. So I think they'll give them, um, yeah, I mean, a, a solid six months to, to, you know, to, to come into compliance, maybe even longer uh, if, it, if they feel like they need it. Um, but it's hard. I mean, they, they um, regulators feel like they need to add more, rigor to the counterparty regime. They realized that they should have done this last year, you know, when everybody had, you know, more to more to spend on rigor than this year. Um, and they realized that um, not only do you not want to uh, lean in at a precarious moment, but you don't want to lean into a sector of the economy that or sector of the market rather that supported exactly the kind of borrowers that you're bending up backwards to help. So they're in a they're in a tough spot. Jim, uh, we're just about out of time, but I got to ask you one more question, an issue uh, we've talked about on this show for a long time. You talked about how it's hard to uh, impact in the supply side of housing. We've talked about a plan for a while now. I think the stat I saw was 70% of the, institu- the non-owners of non-owner occupied properties own between three and 10 properties. Um, what about 
shoot holes in the plan where you would waive capital gains taxes for non-institutional owners of investment properties, incenting them to sell them, essentially. I, I, I know there's something I'm missing, but it just seems like a win-win from a policy standpoint. Well, you got to be careful they don't just sell to the big guys, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you got to be careful that you're not taking the mom and pops who people aren't all that worried about at this point. Um, although to your point, maybe they should be because they're overwhelmingly the largest part of the market. Um, you you want to make sure that you, I mean, I got to think about it. Uh, the incentive, whether not, to be clear, was for the mom and pops. No, I know, I know. Okay, but right, but, yeah, right. If, if, you're, if you're releasing that supply onto the market, and I like that because the mom and pops typically own properties that are good for first-time home buyers. Like there's a, you know, it makes sense. They're at exactly the point in the market that is most undersupplied. You'd want to make sure that in doing that, you're not just setting up a supply channel for you know invitation homes to come in and and suck up you know a bunch of a bunch of yeah it would have to be it would have to be sold to a owner occupant yeah I, I mean I, let me think about it I mean it's a, yeah I like we, because because I've been focused on and this is meant to be supportive of what you're, the logic um, as I talk to members of Congress and the administration. Uh, what I've said repeatedly is you've got to change the math um, for builders, right? Right now, the math for builders at the bottom of the market doesn't work. You know, one plus one's got to equal three. It doesn't. So they're not building at the bottom of the market. So, and, and, you know, the easiest place to do that's with a tax code. Um, I mean, there are other ways it might be more targeted, but tax codes, you know, the congressmen can get their heads around that. Um, but but you're, you're suggesting the same logic in effect uh, for the mom and pops um, to sell in the market. I, I mean, I, there's nothing conceptually wrong with it. I have to, I have to think about it. Let me let me uh, take that back with you. Maybe we can have you back on because I, I, it's been fascinating uh, hearing your perspective on all these issues. And uh, yeah, I really have enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and lending your insight. Yeah, my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. So uh Let's do that. And uh, Jim, I'll, I'll coordinate with you on a, a Friday coming up in the future. The fact you didn't shoot down my plan completely, it, it yeah. fills me with optimism because it. No, I'm, I'm a naturally positive guy. So no, well, you're a massive aggressive guy. I'll send you a long email after this explaining like, why right. it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I'm sure there's something we're missing, but uh, really appreciate your insight. Uh, Rob, as always, uh, enjoy uh, the conversation every Friday with you. And uh, congrats again to your world champion, uh, Golden State Warriors. So, yeah, thank you. And to I had nothing our, to do with it. And to our viewers, your daughter's, you know, she's dating the video guy. Could add some impact. Yeah. Um, I don't want to talk about that, Rich. <laughs> and to our viewers, listeners, to our podcast listeners, where the majority of you consume the program, join us live on Fridays uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern. Go to mortgagecollaborative.com. You can find the link to register for the live broadcast. Um, we'll keep making these in the podcast can also find us on YouTube. And then of course, we're here every Friday live at 3 PM Eastern with the rundown with Rob and Rich. Thanks again, to my co-host Rob Crisman and to Jim Parrott for, uh, spewing some knowledge and, uh, perspective on our audience today. Thanks again, Jim. All right. All right. Have a great weekend, everyone. Until next Friday, have a great weekend and a great next week. Take care. Bye. For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.